Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. So as we enter into our text for today, before we read it, um, I, I want to share with you a story about Shrek the sheep. Okay, so I'm going to put up a picture of this sheep, and we're going to leave it on the screen for a minute or two until I tell uh, the person to take it down. So Shrek the sheep uh, was in New Zealand, and he was lost for six years. And what happened was he grew 60 pounds of wool. And what happened was is that he could barely walk, And then eventually, after six years, he was found in the New Zealand countryside, and he came back into a flock. He got sheared of all these 60 pounds of wool, and he recovered well, and he actually lived a very good life. So you can take that Shrek the sheep off the screen, although it probably is better looking at the sheep than looking at me the whole time, but I'm sorry, I am the pastor and I'm preaching, so you're going to have to look at me for at least a little bit. But what we see when we look at the Bible that very often the people who are members of a local church are referred to as sheep. And that the church, a local church, is referred to as a flock. And that Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd. And that pastors are referred to as under-shepherds or overseers or those who come underneath the chief shepherd to care for the flock of God. And so we see that this there's a prevailing theme throughout the entirety of the New Testament about how Jesus views his church as a flock of sheep, how he views us as sheep, and then how he views pastors and leaders within his church as under-shepherds, those who come underneath his authority. And those under-shepherds are called elders or overseers. And so we are exploring the book of Titus, and Paul is writing to his protege on how to set up godly leaders in the local church that look like Jesus. And the church in Crete was having some pretty significant challenges and problems. And this is why Paul sent Titus there. He actually tells us in Titus 1.5, he says, this is why I left you, Titus, he's talking to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, multiple elders, in every town as I directed you. And so we're looking at the uh, understanding what godly leadership is in the local church and how that provides protection, how that provides grace, and how that actually helps the local church move forward. And so our main point for today is this. Godly elders lead a local church with care, feeding the members with good teaching, and protecting a local church from threats, both inside and outside. So we're going to be looking at three points today as we look at this next section in the book of Titus. We're going to see that there's a problem in Crete. We're going to see that the solution to the problem is godly elders. And finally, we're going to look at what that other passages of scripture in the Bible, especially in Paul's writing, about how elders lead, feed, and protect the church. So first, let's look at the problem in Crete. So Crete, as we mentioned last week as we introduced the book, was an island of debauchery and thieves and bandits for a thousand years. There was disjointed. There was no local leadership, 
but it was kind of like the Wild West, right? And they had a little church, and really what they had is little house churches spread out all over the island, just like they had little bands of thieves and little bands of mercenaries spread out all over the island. They had little bands of churches that were disjointed and spread out all over the island. And actually, we see in Acts 2, how on the day of Pentecost, the very first day of the church, after the Holy Spirit descended, um, 3,000 people came to faith in Jerusalem. Let's look there and see how the gospel first got to Crete. It says, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, we just wrapped up a few weeks ago talking about the gift of tongues, where actually Peter was speaking in his own language, but everybody else in Jerusalem was hearing it in their own language, right? And so they were in Jerusalem on the very first day of the church, the day of Pentecost. It said 3,000 people came to follow Jesus. And among those 3,000 people who miraculously heard the gospel in their own language, there were some people from Crete. And so they took this gospel back to Crete. And then we see Paul. Paul is shipwrecked on Crete. He passes through Crete. We looked last week at how it's kind of the center of the Mediterranean shipping routes. And so we see how the gospel has been kind of patchwork coming into this island. And we see all these tiny little house churches. But this, this disjointed church has some major problems. It's got some major issues in it. And we're going to look at kind of the issues that are in the local church in Crete, and then we're going to look at how Paul seeks to solve them. So look with me at the issues of the church in Crete in Titus 1, starting in verse 10. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a poet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we see that Paul has some sharp words to say about the church in Crete. And what he was actually talking about was there were some Jewish people who were claiming to know who God was. They were in leadership in these little local churches, but that they, he says that they were doing a bunch of different things. They were teaching for shameful gain. They actually were teaching what people wanted to hear for money. It was like people would pay them to preach a sermon that would be what they wanted to hear. So they're not teaching about the true doctrine of God, but rather they were teaching for shameful gain. Not only that, but we see that they're financially cheating people in their own church. Local Jewish leaders were actually cheating the people in their church. They were claiming to be Christians because they were Jewish, right? And so they said, hey, we're kind of in the same faith. We are better than you. And so we're going to get money from you. They were telling people that they also needed to follow these Jewish laws in order to be saved. And by the way, I'll preach you some sermons on how you can follow the Jewish laws for some money, 
right? So that's what they were kind of doing. And Paul concludes that these people are detestable. They're disobedient. And it says they're unfit for any good work. You see, the people of Crete who needed godly leadership were being severely taken advantage of. And so we see Paul is modeling the heart of Jesus. Jesus gets the most angry. He gets the most violent against the people who are in religious authority who are taking advantage of God's people. And what we see is that this kind of taking advantage of those who are weaker or those in leadership taking advantage of those underneath their leadership was completely normal for Crete. And Crete was so bad that families were rare because of how much people were sexually deviant and how much they would cheat even their own family members. Remember, this is an island full of pirates, thieves, mercenaries. This was a rough crowd. This was no Sunday brunch happening on Crete. This was a rough crowd. So Titus is sent to course correct. He's sent to unify the church, but he's really, Paul's instructing him to expel these detestable, disobedient, unfit leaders immediately. That's one of the first things he tells them to do. So that's the problem. So we see the problem of these unfit leaders, and then Paul gives Titus a solution to that problem. So he says, expel these unfit leaders, but that's not all that he tells them to do. He says, you must have godly elders. There is a solution also to the problem, which is godly eldership. Look with me at Titus 1, starting in verse 5. Paul said, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward under shepherd, right? Think about that. Must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but rather he should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy words taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict him. Wow. There's a lot to unpack here about the solution of godly elders. So Paul is using two words to describe the same office, the same title. He's using elder and he's using overseer. Now what we must understand about this is that this is not a board of men making decisions in a back room, but rather this is challenging servant leadership. That is what he is saying. That is what he wants the people of Crete to embody. And what was happening was, is that they had these people who are kind of sitting back, who are kind of domineering in leadership, who are financially using the people, who are letting sexual deviancy just go rampant, not talking about it, preaching for shameful gain, right? And so what he's saying is not, this is, let's not replace that board with just a different board, What he's saying is is that we need godly servant leaders, leaders who will serve pastoral ministers. So an elder is essentially a person that's in seniority over a church. An overseer, that, that concept or term means like a superintendent, like a guardian, like an overwatch, someone who's watching over. Again, following the theme of a shepherd, this is an under shepherd. This is someone who's watching over the flock of God. 
And we will see in subsequent texts how this is a prevailing theme in Paul's ministry and how it's a prevailing theme in Jesus's language and how it's all throughout the Bible about how leaders of God's people are considered shepherds. And so an elder defined, godly eldership defined, is a team who shepherds and watches over a local congregation who are stewards of the church and tasked with leading, feeding, and protecting the local flock of God. So you notice in this definition, shepherding is the primary metaphor. Sheep are the congregation, the chief shepherd is Jesus, the under shepherds in the middle are the elders and the pastors who are caring. He says, I want you to establish elders in every town. So this is house churches, this is small churches like ours. This is probably mid-sized churches in larger cities. All sizes of churches need godly, mature, spiritually sound leaders. This is one of the marks of a healthy church. This is one of our goals is to have internally raised up leaders who become elders, right? That's one of the goals that our church has. That's one of the ways that our church, Redeeming Hope, will become permanent in Clarksville if we raise up godly men to be elders within our local church. So there is some specific requirements for the Cretan elders. Now, let let me be clear that this list is absolutely not exhaustive, but it's very specific for the people of Crete and what Crete leaders needed. So we actually will get an exhaustive list from Acts 20, from 1 Peter. We'll actually um, not reference 1 and 2 Timothy, but there's other lists of elders in them as well. And they're all kind of different. So when you're actually looking at trying to develop an elder, we take all of the passages of scripture that talk about eldership and we put them together. But this list is actually quite extensive just in the book of Titus. So I I just tried to lay it out. As you can see on the graphic on the screen, it, it was a little challenging just trying to fit all of these requirements onto one little overlay. And I'm just going to read them again, just for the Cretan elders. It says, you must be above reproach. You must be the husband of one wife. Your children must be believers, that they're not charged with debauchery or insubordination. He says it a second time, you must be above reproach. He says it two different times in just this one passage. It's very important. He says, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent or greedy for financial gain. So he tells you all of these lists of things not to do. And you get this prevailing theme of self-control. And actually, we're going to see this in next week's sermon about his instructions for the people within the church, the instructions for the, the sheep, the people that the shepherds are in charge of. And, and he's actually, the prevailing theme there is self-control as well. So we see the self-control with your pride, self-control with alcohol, self-control with your anger, self-control with your finances, self-control with your own perspective of yourself, how you are seen by others around you, self-control with your children and with your wife. So then he moves on and he says, here's some positive things. Here's some positive attributes of these Cretan elders that we need to put in place. He says, they must love good. They must love the good. They must be self-controlled. Again, we see this prevailing theme of self-control, but he says it explicitly here. They must be upright, holy, and disciplined, right? So they, they have to walk in integrity. The, the outside must match the inside. The inside has got to be walking in holiness, 
exemplifying the gospel, and then the outside characteristics must mask that. It says holding firm to the gospel. So this means with knowledge, with character, and with wisdom. You must hold firm to the truth of the gospel. You must be able to instruct in sound doctrine. So able to teach about what's good and then able to rebuke what's not good doctrine. Say, hey, that's bad. So you have to be able to do both. My friends, this is just one passage, just one list of requirements. It is a massive list, huge expectations. And so we see that the solution to the problems of leadership in Crete is to expel the bad leaders and install godly, holy, disciplined, self-controlled leaders that that meet a very specific, very exhaustive list of qualifications. And so part of Timothy's job that we see implied here in the text is to then raise up these men. He's to set in motion an environment in which these men can be developed and trained to exemplify and meet these standards. So we, uh, I want to look back, and I actually have been thinking it might be good for our church in the future to walk through a whole series on this about what the role of eldership is. But we see the third point is that elders lead, feed, and protect the church. They protect the flock. So I want us to look at two other passages of Scripture and what eldership does, and then I want to kind of bring it all together with this passage in Titus to explain a little bit more about God's intention for the local church. Uh, Elders do certain things, and they are certain things. So they do certain things like lead, feed, and protect, and then they, they actually are. It's actually based on who they are. They are spiritually mature. So look with me at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, as we look at another passage that talks about eldership. So this is Paul speaking, this is Peter writing, and he says these words. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. This is what he's telling the elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, first we see clearly, again, a different author, Peter, still using same metaphor of shepherd and sheep. And he says, shepherding and exercising oversight over the flock, he says three main points. He says, first, you should not elder under compulsion, but you should do it willingly which means that you have to want to do it, you shouldn't have to do it. So my friends, I I just have to tell you, some people are pastors because they literally can't do anything else. They have no other skill set. Maybe they grew up in the context of a local church, they went to Bible college, they went to seminary, and their whole work experience has just simply been in the church. That's not how God ever intended that to be. He never intended that to be like a professional development track right? Jesus worked a normal Joe job. He was a carpenter for almost 30 years. We see Paul was a tent maker. We see Peter was a fisherman. We see all of these people in the New Testament that are planting churches, they have seasons where they're actually not in full-time ministry, where they have other jobs and other skill sets. If you just can only be a pastor within a local church or even in your own denomination, what can happen is you can get bitter and you can get passive. 
right? Because if you don't have any other skill set and you've got a mortgage to pay and you've got a wife and a family to feed, then guess what? You're going to make decisions based on self-preservation and preserving your job, right? Because you got to pay the bills and you got to pay the mortgage and you got to feed your family. And if you get fired, how in the world are you going to be able to do that? Because you don't have another skill set, right? So a lot of times what happens is that pastors can get bitter at this or they can get passive to where they're not boldly challenging people with the gospel. They're not boldly protecting the flock because they're worried the flock can make them lose their job. So that's why he says you must serve not under compulsion, but rather willingly. Some people are pastors because they want to do it, because it brings them joy. And then what happens is, is that because they want to do it and it brings them joy, they have a boldness. They can challenge people. They can call people to action. They can rebuke those who are hurting the flock, and then they can encourage the spiritually weak in such a way that motivates them to grow in their faith. So we see that when you actually are serving the flock willingly, you're more joy-filled and you're more bold because you're not doing it because you have to, to pay a bill. You're doing it because you want to. Because trust me, for the amount of money that most pastors in this world get paid, they could probably employ their skill sets elsewhere and make more money. Most pastors don't get into this game because they want to make money. They do it because they genuinely want to see people follow Jesus. And those pastors are more joy-filled and more bold. Next, he says, is you don't do it for shameful game, gain, but eagerly. So this means that you've got to have purity within your motives. Now, I said most pastors don't get into this for the money, but some pastors are pastors because they crave something from the flock. They're shepherds, but they want something from the sheep. And that's never how a shepherd needs to engage with his flock. A shepherd is always there to serve, to protect, to lead, feed, and protect his flock. He never eats the flock. He never kills the flock for food. He never needs something from that. He is employed to serve the flock. The flock shouldn't be giving him anything. But some pastors are pastors because they want something for themselves. They want something from the flock. Maybe it's to make money, but a lot of times it's to appear successful or to get power and control. And a lot of times, pastors become pastors. They move into this realm because they want something for themselves from the flock. However, some people are pastors because they want something for others. They want to serve the flock. So some pastors because they want, are pastors because they want something for themselves, but some pastors are pastors because they want something for others. They want spiritual health. They want to see people thriving. They want to see families thriving. They will see marriages come together and be unified. They want to see singles thriving in their singleness. They want to see people following Jesus. They want to lead, feed, and protect God's church and the flock of God eagerly with passion and anticipation. They're not serving for shameful gain, but they're serving eagerly with pure motives and intentions. And finally, we see he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Some people are pastors because they want power. And, the, and how you catch this is that they don't do the things they ask their people to do. So when you actually dig into the, the, the root of some of these pastors' lives, they're not reading the scriptures consistently. They're not praying. They're not being transformed by grace. They're not vulnerable within community. They're not sharing their sins and being open and confessing where they're wrong 
right? And, and I would be very cautious of you if you are ever in an environment, including with me, where you don't hear your pastor regularly confessing their sin and repenting and asking for forgiveness. If you've never heard your pastor ask for forgiveness for something, that is a red flag. A pastor needs to walk in humility. He needs to be an example to the flock. And some pastors are pastors because they want to see the church thrive. They don't want to domineer, but they want to care. And those pastors that do that are examples. They model, they do what they're asking everybody else to do. They're not sitting back in a position of power saying, serve me, feed me. What they're saying is, as a good shepherd rolls up his shirt sleeves and he gets in and he's caring for the flock, even if it's dirty, even if it's messy, even if it involves some pain and some scratches and some wounds along the way, he needs to be an example, walking in humility, walking in grace, walking in care for the people that are underneath him that he is supposed to be shepherding well. So we see 1 Peter gives us some really good principles about what elders are supposed to do and who they're supposed to be. We see another example of this in Acts 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now this is Paul. And he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, overwatchers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Wow, great things. These are some of Paul's last words. He actually tells them right after this. He says, you're not gonna see me again. I'm not coming back here. And they're weeping with tears and they're getting on their knees, praying together before he gets on the ship and ultimately to his martyrdom. But he gives a few points that I wanna briefly go over and maybe at another juncture, we will dive into deeper. The first thing he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. My friends, both are vital to eldership. You have to have an elder that cares for his soul. That's personal character. That's his own heart character needs to be aligned with God. He needs to be spending time in the word, walking in holiness, having no besetting sins that are in his life. The, the, the elder must then be careful with his doctrine, right? It's so easily to be swayed when you read certain things or with the, the, the newest thought or the newest doctrine of the day. And some of these new ideas that are coming out of seminaries are great and they're helpful for the church, but some of them are not. And our standard is what is in the Bible, what is in the scriptures. How does this align with what we already understand the Bible says? And so we must pay careful attention to ourselves, eldership, careful attention to our doctrine, and careful attention to our integrity, especially as it relates to the outside world around us. A lot of times, someone will, will hear about God or their perception about God will be in the people that they believe represents God around them. So a pastor is a leader within a community. 
And so he must have personal character and integrity. He must pay close attention to his doctrine, but then also must be well thought of by people outside of the church. Next, it says, pay careful attention to yourself and the flock of God which is among you. This means that we must care for them, know how they're doing, serve them, be in their lives. The best shepherds in the first century, they literally spent all of the time with the sheep. And they would know the names of the sheep. And they would know which ones have a bum leg that needed help. They knew which ones' legs were broken. They knew which ones had a tendency to wander off and they would pull them back in. They knew which ones were the strong ones to put at the front to lead. They knew which ones that were the weak to stay behind. They knew how to guide and care for the flock well. And that's what a, a pastor's job is. That's what an elder's job is, to care for the flock, to know how you're doing. That's why I'm in your lives. That's why a good elder needs to know what's going on in his church. That says, pay careful attention to yourselves and the flock. The next thing he says is, know and recognize your responsibility. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has made certain people overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. My friends, Jesus bought the church with his own blood, and he gives and entrusts elders to care for his church. This is a huge responsibility. This is weighty. This is sobering. This is not fun and games. Like there should be an element of joy that comes with serving and of of doing this voluntarily, but this is a heavy weight on men's shoulders. This is why most lay elders that are that are not staffed, that don't do this as a vocation, as a job, but that serve in addition to working a normal job as an elder and a pastor, this is why they rotate off every, every few years. Because this is a weighty job to be in people's lives because Jesus has bought the church with his own blood. You are valuable. If you're a member of Redeeming Hope, if you consider Redeeming Hope your church family, your church home, you are so valuable in the eyes of God. By the way, not just if you're a member of our church, but anywhere, right? But with our local church, part of what I am entrusted with is to understand your value before God and how he has entrusted the people of Redeeming Hope into our hands, the hands of the elder team, the hands of the, the, the people in leadership and into the hands of the pastor. And so part of my job is to recognize the preciousness of you, that you care and you matter to God. And that means that you must matter to me as well. And I need to be careful on how I treat you and care for you and lead you because you have been bought by Jesus' blood himself. Now it says, so we say, we pay careful attention to ourselves and the flock. Recognize responsibility. Next, it says, protect the flock. Paul says, fierce wolves will come in from among you. So what he means is that they'll seem like, people will seem like they're part of the church, but they'll be vicious wolves. My friends, wolves have teeth, sheep have wool. Let me say that again. Wolves have teeth that are meant to kill. Sheep have wool. There's no comparison there. (laughs) Like, wolves are vicious predators. Sheep are vulnerable prey. They're incredibly vulnerable and need to be protected. And he says that how these wolves will work, how they'll work to damage and kill the local church, is that they will speak twisted things to draw people away. My friends, people will want to draw you away from a healthy church context. And they will primarily do this with gossip. 
So when you hear people talking about the leadership of our church, when you hear people talking about one another but not coming directly, if you are speaking within a group context and you hear your group leader say, hey, maybe you should talk with Josh about that, I want you to know that's code in our leadership team for you need to stop talking and gossiping and go to the person directly. Every time you hear that, and it's not passive aggressive, it's genuinely like the Bible says very clearly, if you have a problem with another person, you go to them directly. You don't talk about it with anybody else. You don't gossip about it in a group. You don't call five people and say you don't like that person. You don't like the decision that they're making. Or maybe you don't think your pastor loves you anymore or cares for you because he hasn't called you in a few weeks, right? You have to go to the person directly. And that's the only way that we can keep the fierce wolves, the predators, the, the damaging things that will seek to destroy this precious flock, this precious gift of God that he has purchased with the blood of Jesus. That's how we keep this cared for and protected and safe. And part of a pastor's job is to protect from the wolves coming from the outside. And it says, be alert. So my friends, this is why I pray for you. This is why I'm in your life and I seek to know what's going on. If I call you, call me back. I'm not doing this because I just want to. I do this because I love you and I care for you and I'm calling you with intention and purpose. This is why I know what's being taught and spoken about in our groups. I have a tight relationship with our group leaders. I know what they're talking about. I know what's going on in our groups. That's part of it. That's my finger on the pulse of what's being taught and, and cared for. This is why I carefully vet who preaches on Sunday morning. Like, I invite people that I know and trust, that I have had experience with, that I've done life with, to preach on Sunday mornings when they guest preach. This is why, in order to be in a leadership position in our church, you have to have godly character and lead your family well. Like, we don't just give out titles at Redeeming Hope. Like, you don't just get a title or get leadership. Like, actually, the number one qualification of leadership is humility. And it's, are you able to be available, teachable, submissive to God and to the other people in your life? Humility is the number one qualifier for leadership in our church. This is why when people are hurting other people in our church, I get involved. I don't step back. I'm not passive. I'm not doing this out of compulsion. I'm not doing this out of fear. I'm not doing this to pay the bills. I'm doing this because I want to. But this is also why part of my job involves if other people are being hurt in our church, I get involved. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy this church. Satan wants to destroy a gospel-centered expression of church in Clarksville. And he's done this with other churches, and he's doing it at churches right now in Clarksville that are good and godly, that are seeking to advance the gospel. He is wanting to attack the church, and he will attack it from without, and he'll attack it from within. I am on alert, and it's part of my job to do so. So that means if I give you a call, if I ask how you're doing, even if I ask you questions like, hey, what about this? Or, hey, how's this going? Or, hey, how's your marriage doing? Or, hey, how's things going with this specific thing? I'm not doing it to attack you. I'm doing it because I love you. I'm doing it because there are wolves and wolves have teeth and sheep have wool and they're vulnerable. And I am charged as God's under shepherd to care for you well. And I'm doing that to the best of my abilities. So, Here's a summary of the elders and what the elders do from 1 Peter and Acts. They serve willingly. They serve with pure motives. As examples, they pay close attention to themselves. They pay close attention to the flock. They recognize their responsibility. They protect the flock and they're on alert.
So here's the thing. Why did God put, put it this way? Like, it just seems like there's a lot here with elders. And it seems like a really high bar to me. Here's the deal. God has a lot of qualifications and expectations for leaders in his church because he is entrusting these leaders with God's church. And the leaders and the actions of leaders actually represent God to the people and to the community. So when leaders hurt others, it brings God into the mix. People think, well, wait a minute. If he said this, then is that how God thinks about me? And here's the deal. We see that elders are held to a higher standard, but they're also protected from false accusations as well. Look with me at 1 Timothy 5.19. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that's different from a normal church member. The normal church member, Matthew 18, says if one of your brothers sins, you see them, you go to them directly, you confront them, and then you start to get more people involved as you go up and, and kind of work church discipline through that. But he actually says that you need two or three people to observe the problem with an elder before you bring a charge against them or before you challenge their authority, which means that elders have to have a higher level of qualification, they have a higher level of responsibility, but they also have a high level of protection as well against false accusations. So elders do, to, elders do certain things and they are certain things. So elders, overseers, shepherds, they do three things, just like a shepherd would. They lead, feed, and protect the flock. They lead them. They motivate with vision and care and godliness as examples. They feed. They teach what accords with sound doctrine. That, that essentially is like what we're doing right now, teaching good doctrine to the flock consistently. And finally, elders protect. They protect from false theology, external predators, internal predators, from financial predators, from abusers. They protect the flock. So those are some of the things they do. But elders are certain things. And the best way to put this is elders are spiritually mature. That's just the best way to put it. And they have a growing awareness of their own sin and God's grace that transforms their actions over time. And so elder is a title, it's a noun, but it can also be a verb. It can also, elders elder, it, that they shepherd, they make disciples, they're an example. Like you see godly mature men walk into a church, they begin eldering immediately. They don't need a title. They just begin like a shepherd would walking into a flock. They begin to protect the the little flock that comes around them. They begin to care for them. They begin to see a weak sheep and go over and, and strengthen it. They see a sheep with a broken leg and they help fix it. They're just helpers. they servants. And a servant serves wherever they go, just like a leader leads regardless of a title. And when elders are nominated, when elders are brought forth in front of the church, it's not us making men into something that they're not. It's us acknowledging something that's already happening and affirming it together joyfully, together as a family. So to be an elder, it takes a long time to be qualified. And these qualifications are extensive. And I want to say too, it's not dependent on age, but rather it's dependent on maturity. Because we see Timothy was an elder. And Paul told Timothy, don't let, him, don't let people despise you because of your youth, right? It depends on spiritual maturity, not on physical age. Because there's plenty of people that are physically old or older and not spiritually mature, there are many people who might be younger that still have life experience that are spiritually mature. It's also not dependent on life stage, but rather maturity. And I found this very unique in the Southern church context that people look at Rachel and I weird when we say we don't have kids. And we don't have kids yet. We want to have children. But 
That hasn't been in the cards up to this point in our life. And it's a cultural thing. But we look, and I want to be very cautious with you. Don't look down on someone because they don't have children. And don't think that they can't pastor you because they don't have children. I want to make a couple of notes here. Paul was single, didn't have any kids, wrote most of the New Testament, including how families should operate. Timothy was single. He didn't have a family. His family was the church, and he was instructed to appoint elders. Titus was more than likely single. And also, the most important man in human history was Jesus, and he was single. And he spoke into families and how families should operate. So it takes a team of men to hold one another accountable to being elders. And we see too, just one other thing as we wrap up this conversation about eldership is when we establish elders in a local church, it is never quick. It is always very slow process. We're three years in and we're just beginning to explore this idea as a church family. This is because 1 Timothy 5.22 says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. You've also been probably noting that I've been using male terminology for this role in the church. And so what we see and what we believe and attest to as a church is that this role is reserved for men, which is a unique role in the family and in the household. And so we'll get into that more. We can work that out more as maybe we do a specific sermon series on eldership eventually in the future. But that is reserved for men, and it's primarily connected because of the role of men in the family and God's intention of the role for the family and how the church is the family of God. Next to, it's also important that it's got to be the right fit. So what's really interesting is that Paul uses different language in different books to describe the qualifications of an elder. They're all kind of the same. They all revolve around being self-controlled and spiritually mature. But, you know, in Crete, he's talking about one thing. But Peter, in 1 Peter 5, says something a little different. And Paul, to the Ephesians, is giving them different instructions slightly. So there's got to be a character fit, um, which is universal. There's got to be a competency fit. You've got to know how to teach sound doctrine, how to rebuke, how to be thought well of from outside, how to have emotional intelligence. But there's also got to be a culture fit, too. So that means that it takes time and years of development to make sure that the, that the, the leadership of the church has a culture fit that knows what the, the vision is and that can help carry the vision of this unique expression of church forward well. Now, you might be thinking, man, this is impossible, it seems like, to be qualified as an elder. It's not impossible. And I also want to note that it's a good thing to want this. Look with me at 1 Timothy 3.1. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We see as with the people of Crete, with Titus, God is instructing his people not to follow fancy plans, not to follow those who are the loudest or the boldest, but to rather follow those with godly character. Now, if you are joining us and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe you might be exploring joining a local expression of church or maybe just exploring what this might look like. I want you to know, that you have an over-shepherd over your soul available to you. And his name is Jesus. Jesus fought for you. Like a good shepherd fights to protect the flock, he fought for you. He has sought you in your wandering. Like Shrek, the sheep that we talked about at the beginning, wandering away in the New Zealand wilderness for six years, Jesus has sought you. And he has the power to bring you back from the power of sin and lawlessness in your life. He has the power to heal you. 
He has the power to change you, to protect you, and to help you live under the freedom of being a part of a church family and the protection of being a part of a local church family. All you have to do is hear the message of Jesus, to believe that it's true for you, that you need his leadership in your life. You need him to be your shepherd and you come underneath him, underneath his flock. And then you need to obey by making Jesus Lord over your life, by making him the chief shepherd over your life. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that you have under shepherds who have been trained and qualified here at Redeeming Hope to lead you well. I want you to know these qualifications. I want you to know these qualifications in case you're currently at another church and watching this. I want you to know these qualifications in case you see me faltering in these things. Like, I want you to be trained so that you can come to me and say, hey, Josh, in this moment, you weren't gentle with me. Hey, Josh, you were, you were not harsh. Hey, Josh, you're asking me to do something. Question, have you done that? Like, I really want you to challenge this. I want you to know these qualifications so that you can be free and trained and have the knowledge of what the Bible says to hold me accountable to these things. Because you should not submit under elders who don't need, meet these unique and special qualifications. But if you do have elders and leaders who do meet these qualifications, then God calls you to submit to them, to listen to them, to follow them, to learn from them, and be protected by them. They are charged to care for your souls. So back to our main point, godly elders lead a local church with care. They feed the members with good teaching and protect a local church from threats both inside and out. You see, Shrek the sheep, he strayed from his flock. And what happened is he spent years in the wilderness. And at first, it probably felt great to not be with the flock. But eventually, he was barely alive. He was barely able to stand because he was so encumbered with the weight of 60 pounds of wool weighing him down, messing up his joints. But when he was found, when he was brought under the care of a, of a loving, competent shepherd, his, his, his coat was shorn. He was able to, to be free again. And he thrived and he lived a good life. And this is what I want for you. This is the example that I want you to have. And I want to challenge you. If you are a part of Redeeming Hope, there is an encouragement that if you have godly elders, elders in leadership, and if you look at the qualifications of an elder and you look at me as, as your lead pastor, and you see that I do meet these qualifications as best as you can understand them, I want to challenge you with this message from Hebrews 13. This is what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. My friends, as elders are called to have joy in how they lead, I want you to be a joy to lead. I want you to be growing in spiritual maturity. I want us to work together. This is not an adversarial relationship. You are not my opponents, and I am not yours. We are a family. We are a friends. We're a flock of sheep under the true over-shepherd, the over-watcher, who is Jesus. And we're following Jesus together. And it just so happens in this season that God has, has placed me as an under-shepherd. And you're joining this flock. And so I want you to be a joy for me to lead. And I want you to submit and listen and follow as we seek to be missionaries in Clarksville, as we seek to follow the chief shepherd Jesus together. I want you to hold me accountable to these things. But I also, if, I also want you to submit and I want you to grow. And I want you to surrender to Christ. And I want you to surrender to the, the elements of our church that, that we want to help you 
be protected, protected from the wolves, thriving, moving forward in the gospel together. Fall under the loving protection of Jesus as, as you are a part of a local church family. I love you guys. Thank you for joining this local gathering, this local flock. It is a joy to lead you. It is an honor to be an elder in this church. I love you guys. I hope you have a great week. I'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.